I'm hearing about profound loneliness. And I hear that from almost everybody that comes in in some way. Um, whether they're grieving, whether they're coming in because of something, you know, concrete that happened in their lives. Um, I think people are feeling disconnected and lonely, even if they have a great partner, even if they have great family, even if they have great friends. Um, there's a sense of not really, truly feeling connected in a way that they want to. And connected to themselves, too, by the way. So it's not just connected to others, but connected to self. Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is author and therapist Lori Gottlieb. You may be familiar with her best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which follows the therapy journeys of five people in psychotherapy, four of them Lori's own patients, and one of them Lori herself. Now, there are a lot of books out there written by therapists, but Lori's is a little different because she shares not just her expertise, but some of the details of her own issues. She spoke with me about her rather circuitous path to her current vocation. She was a television writer and then a medical student before becoming a therapist, and what she's learned from her practice, what she thinks people misunderstand about therapy, and why and whether anyone should go to therapy in the first place. Lori Gottlieb, welcome to The Unspeakable. Well, thank you so much, Megan. Your book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, does something unique in that it talks about your work as a therapist through the lens, or at least partly through the lens, of your own experience in therapy. The book has been enormously successful, and I know you've had lots of conversations about different aspects of it uh, in the couple of years since it was published. Uh, I definitely want to touch on a number of those aspects, but first, I've I wanted to talk about what the last year has been like for you as a therapist. It would be an understatement to say that 2020 was a special kind of mental health year. Uh, so I'm curious when you, you know, when you imagine thinking back on this time that we're in, what do you think will stand out the most? You know, it's really interesting because obviously when I wrote, maybe you should talk to someone, I had no idea that a year later there would be a global pandemic. And the reason that <laughs> I am not a, a uh, anticipate such things. No, I, I wish I had that kind of foresight um, or maybe not. Right. If that's what you're going to find out. Um, but it's interesting because I always meant for the title of the book not to be so much a nod toward, hey, maybe you should talk to someone, maybe you should see a therapist, but maybe we should all talk more to one another. And I think what happened in this last year is that people realized how important that is. And I don't mean the kind of superficial talk, but I mean really talking about what we're experiencing, what we have in common, what our struggles are. I think that that taboo of, you know, we have to have this sort of almost performative aspect to our lives that, you know, everything's fine. Everything was not fine. And it was finally okay to say everything is not fine. Mm, mm, that's interesting. So when you say everything was not fine, were you, were you feeling like there was something particularly pernicious about 
the culture or just the state of the world that was affecting people's sort of just life experience um, in ways that wasn't the case, like when we were growing up or even 10 years ago, like what were your feelings about just kind of the the moment and the, and the world, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I think before the pandemic, people were struggling a lot with just being present in their lives. So I think that there was so much kind of, um, you know, feeling like they had a million things to do, a million places to be, never really measuring up. And I mean, that's what I would see in the therapy room is a lot of that. And of course, a lot of, you know, really deep struggle on on other levels. But I think there was this all like for everybody, I think there was this low level of, um, you know, I can't catch my breath. And I think that the pandemic forced us all to slow down and stop and try to catch our breaths. So are you saying that there's actually been an upside to the pandemic? Well, let me be clear. Um, you know, nobody thinks that the pandemic was a good thing um, or has been a good thing. But I do think that if you think about what we might take when we emerge from the pandemic, I think that some of the things we've noticed, and we're afraid to talk about them, by the way, because it feels so not politically correct to say, you know what, there were some things about this time that I actually enjoyed. That is so, you can't say that. A lot of people that. do see, are secretly in, enjoying it. But they are, they are. And again, they aren't. And and just to be clear, you know, and you you have to, there are sort of all these caveats that people will make because people will misinterpret this, that it's not that people are saying, you know, it's not that people are, are blind to all of the suffering that's going on. And it's not that people aren't suffering themselves. But I think that some people have said, you know what? I don't miss my commute to work. And I don't know if I want to go back to that. Or I didn't really like my job. And maybe I want to do something else. Or, um, you know, I really like having family dinner every night. And I want to keep that. And and I think the other part, too, that I was talking about was, and finally, so many people are saying, and I want to take care of my emotional health because I never really did that. So I think, obviously, a lot of a lot of people are familiar with your book. And I would presume a lot of listeners uh, are as well. But maybe you could just give us an overview um, about your own practice, what kind of people you work with. Uh, you know, your the, the book is framed around your own experience going uh, back into therapy because you had a really, really painful breakup. Uh, so maybe you can just kind of give us give us an overview as to what, who, who's in the book, what kind of people, what kind of person are you in the book and uh, where you're where you're sort of located just culturally and uh, as a person? Yeah. So the book follows the lives of four of my patients as they go through their various struggles. And then there's a fifth patient in the book. And as you said, that fifth patient is me as I go through my own struggle and I go to see my own therapist. And so you're kind of seeing the human condition from my vantage point of both clinician and patient. And I picked the people stories to follow in the book um, very intentionally. I really wanted to show people who on the surface seemed very different from one another and very different from me. So all five of us seem very different. And you have different ages, different backgrounds, different personalities, different presenting problems, um, you know, all kinds of things. And, and I think that what you find or what most people find when they read the book is that 
they find aspects of themselves in every single person. And I think that's because our struggles are so universal. I think so many times we feel alone in our particular struggle or we minimize our struggle, especially I would say as women, we minimize our struggle all the time. Men do it differently, I think. And, you know, these are gross generalizations, but I will say that, that, you know, a lot of times what we do is we say, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So whatever I'm going through, this depression, this anxiety, this relational difficulty, this trouble sleeping, this stuckness, um, you know, it's not that bad. And it's so interesting because we never do that with our physical health, right? So if you break your arm, you don't sit there going, well, it's not like I have cancer, so I'm not going to go to the doctor and get a cast for my arm. But we do that with our emotional health. It's like, well, it's not really that bad compared to and everybody has something that they can compare it to. And, and I think that that's, that's really what I'm trying to do in the book is I'm trying to show, you know, what is this process of really going and, and looking inside and saying, you know, it's not this navel gazing thing. It's not this like thing for the privileged. It's, um, I mean, I would say there is an access issue, but I also, there are clinics that you can go to for free, low fee, no fee. Like people can go to therapy, but I think that people have so many misconceptions about what it is and who goes. And in the book, I really try to kind of demystify all of that. So tell us uh, who the characters are, at least a few of them. I know there's there's yeah. John, who um, I think he starts off the book. There's There's a woman who's has a cancer diagnosis. There's a woman who's in her seventies and dating, which that could be a book in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's there's a woman in her twenties who's dating and you get to see both sides of that. Right. right. John is this, is this guy in his forties and he's married with some kids and um, he's a very successful person professionally And he's kind of an asshole when you meet him. And I can say that only because he's the person that I think people come to love the most in the book. And also because, you know, he presents that way. The first thing that he does when he meets me is he, he insults me. He's, he says he's there because he's, he's, there are all these idiots in his life and he has trouble managing all the idiots. And he's just very off-putting and abrasive. And he has, you know, what we might call narcissistic traits. And people say, well, why would you even take him into your practice? Why would you even see someone like that? And I think it's because I think that we communicate the unspeakable through our behavior. If we can't say something, we act it out. And so I knew there was some pain there and probably some tremendous pain there. I had no idea what it was. And I was very surprised when I did find out what it was. Um, But I knew there was something there and that's why he was really there. It wasn't because he was stressed out and having trouble sleeping. It was maybe, you know, that was part of it, but there was so much more to his story. So it's interesting to see how you can really get to know someone and how our first impressions of people are often not quite what they seem. Um, And then the next person you meet is this woman, Julie, who had just gotten married. She's in her early thirties and she comes back from her honeymoon and she finds out that she thought this funky thing that she was feeling in her breast was maybe a sign of pregnancy, which they had been hoping for. And instead it was a sign of cancer. And, um, Ultimately, she ends up with a terminal diagnosis, and um, it's really about her asking me to accompany her on this 
path toward her death, which we don't know how long it's going to be. They say it could be anywhere between one year and 10 years, which of course the difference between a year and 10 years is enormous. Um, and so it's, it's really about her trying to figure out how to live, knowing that she has a limited time here, but also helping, I think me and anybody reading the book to realize that, you know, life has a hundred percent mortality rate. We're all going to die. We all have a limited time here and we don't know how or when we're going to die. And so, um, I think her story is, is really about life more than death, but it's also incredibly poignant and sad. And then you meet Rita, who is at the end, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is she is about to turn 70 and she's had a couple of marriages that didn't work out. Her adult children are estranged from her and won't have anything to do with her because of things that she did when um, when she was raising them. And she says that if nothing changes between now and my 70th birthday, she comes in at 69. I don't want to live anymore. And she is the most isolated person I had ever met. She literally has nobody in her life. And she kind of exists in her apartment. Um, she paints sometimes, but she's so depressed that she can't really do that anymore. She she and basically she has kids. She has kids who she, don't speak to her anymore. They don't speak to her yeah. at right at all. Um, you know, she's her her story is one of immense regret. And, you know, she feels like she made every bad decision she could possibly make in her life. Um, and now that she's finally starting to see some of this, she feels like it's too late. And and quite honestly, and I say this very frankly in the book, that um, when I first meet her, I don't know how much can change. I think, well, she needs more social connection. What can we do about that? But I had no idea how much her life was going to change. And so it's really extraordinary to see that. And it's also, when I say extraordinary, it's extraordinary because it's surprising, but it's not that unusual. And so that's why I wanted to include her story. It wasn't like, here's a one in a million story. It's This happens all the time. Yeah, I actually want to want to pause here and talk about change because it's kind of a an article of faith that especially I guess in, in a couple's kind of context like expecting the other person to change is like a fool's errand. Like, you know, that's the the worst thing you can do is expect or assume that somebody will change, but then on the other hand, a sort of central tenant of therapy, the reason people go is on some level, they, there is something they want to change. So like, what are your feelings about just the nature of change in human beings? Are we, are, are, are we, is it something that we can really do? Is it something that comes naturally to us on any level? Or does it really have to be sort of forced out of us? I don't think it has to be forced out of us. I think we have to be ready. And so when people come into the therapy room, I'm not just asking, why are you here? But I want to know why now? Why this week, this month, did you make the call when maybe this has been going on for months or even years, as in Rita's case, or even Charlotte, the, the fourth person in the book is this young woman in her 20s who keeps dating the wrong guys. And she keeps hooking up with like, you know, guys who are going to disappoint her. She ends up hooking up with a guy in the waiting room. I mean, not hooking up in the waiting room, but a guy that she meets in the waiting room. Our, waiting office room? Is, our office is not that exciting. Um, the waiting room at the, at the therapy office. Um, uh -huh. But she meets him there because he's going to see another therapist in our suite. And I know immediately that this guy is going to be bad news because that's all she does is pick guys who are going to be bad news. And she thinks 
that it's the guys that are the problem when really it's something that she's doing in terms of having radar for this particular kind of person. And that goes back to change because what happens is change is hard because change involves loss and it, even positive change. So people say, oh, this is going to be a positive change. I'm going to make my life better by doing something different. But what you're giving up is you're giving up the familiar. You're giving up what you know. And humans don't do well with uncertainty. So when you make a change, you're going from something that you know, even if it makes you miserable or even if it's unpleasant, to something that you don't know, which can be incredibly terrifying. It's like plopping you down in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, you don't know anybody, and saying, okay, it's a better location than you were in before, but you're lost there. Right. So this is like the idea of choosing partners that, even though they're bad for us, feel familiar because we grew up with this particular dynamic. So even though it's, well, right. even though it's unpleasant... It, it, there is a comfort there because we don't actually have to, to change anything. Well, the irony is that, yes, there's a comfort there because it feels like home, even though people pledge to themselves when they didn't grow up in a home that they want to replicate, I'm going to do something different when I grow up. I'm going to have a different kind of home. But what happens is, you know, we, there's a saying, we marry our unfinished business. And if you haven't worked through your business, so if it's still unfinished business, you are going to repeat the same patterns over and over. So what, how that plays out, like it does with Charlotte in the book, is that she keeps meeting these guys that look very different from her parents on the surface. But then once she gets to know them, it's like we do have radar for that person who replicates the situation we were in. There's this thing called repetition compulsion, which is that you keep reenacting the same scene over and over because you think this time I will win. This time I will get the love. This time it will work out. And you have to be able to work through that and know, you know what? You, you have to withdraw from the contest, right? Because you can't keep repeating the same situation and expecting it to turn out differently. And so she would meet these guys. They would seem very different on the surface. And then when she got to know them, they would be very similar to something that she experienced, particularly with her father. And that's why somebody who grew up with, let's say, a parent who drank too much will end up with somebody who has some kind of addiction. Somebody who grew up with a parent who had an anger problem will end up with somebody who has you know, anger problems. They have a, they have a short temper, let's say. Um, somebody who, who grew up with an avoidant parent will probably grow up with somebody, I mean, will probably grow up to meet somebody who doesn't really show them affection until they work through this. And that's why you see in the Charlotte story is sort of the other, the other side of the coin from Rita, where Rita did all of those things and never worked through it. And that's how she ended up at almost 70 like that. Charlotte is in her 20s and she has an opportunity to do things differently much earlier on in her life. So those two stories I thought were really important to tell because they're sort of like, here's what happens when you deal with it in your 20s. And here's what happens when you deal with it when you're, you know, almost 70. And both people can change and both people do change quite a bit. In fact, I would say Rita changes more than Charlotte, right? Um, but but I think you can see that you don't have to spend all of those years that way because you can go and understand your pattern better and work through it and make those changes. Okay. So wait, are we on to the fifth patient yet, which is you, or did we miss somebody? We, we uh, over the three? Yeah, no, those are the four. Those, those are the four, four that are okay. not me. Yeah. 
the, the fifth patient is you. And, you know, before we talk about how you, how you use your own therapy in the book and you do so really sort of seamlessly and it's, it's a tour de force on a writing level, but talk about your trajectory uh, professionally. You, you did not start off as a therapist. You've, you had many, um, you had many couple different career paths. Uh, so can you talk about sort of how you arrived at this place? Yeah, it's funny you say a couple. I think there were <laughs> more okay. than a couple <laughs> because uh, because it, it's. I, I always used to joke back then that that it, just because I was so embarrassed because people did not understand what I was doing, um, I always said I'm either very versatile or very confused, and that was how I would kind of put people off when they tried to tell me that what I was doing was insane. Um, I'm really glad that I did what I did, and I think it it landed me exactly where I wanted to be. But at the time, it did look. A little bit strange. I started off working um, first in film development in Los Angeles um, after I graduated from college. And then I moved over to network television um, where I was working at NBC. And when I got to NBC, it was the year that NBC was premiering two shows that that ultimately came to kind of define what, what was then called must-see TV on Thursday nights. One of the shows was Friends. The other show was ER. And of course, we know what happened with those. And when I was working on ER, um, I was like the baby executive. I was the most junior person there. And so I was the person who was... Set, and also because I was kind of like a science person um, in the sense of I always loved math and science. Um, and I was like the girl who was on the math team and, you know, in high school and I, I taught calculus in college. And, you know, I was... I was like that person who um, who kind of loved the science of it. And so we had a consultant on the show who was an ER physician. And I was sent to go hang out in the ER with him and come up with story ideas. And I just wanted to be in the ER all the time. I never wanted to go back to the office. And he kept saying to me, you know, I think you like it here better than you like your day job. And I did. But... I thought, how do you, you know, I'm not going to go to medical school now. I was like 27, I think at the time. And I thought, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't take all the pre-med classes. I was not pre-med. I was a French literature major in college. Um, you know, there's no way I'm doing that. But of course I ended up doing that. And so I went up to medical school and I was, I was at Stanford, which was ground zero for the dot-com boom right before the first bus. So this was like 1999-2000. And when I got to medical school, you know, I had this fantasy of I'll be the family doctor who guides people through their lives because what ultimately what I really liked was story and the human condition. And I felt like you know, when I was working in film and when I was working in television, that's what drew me toward that work was story and the human condition. But then when I got into the real ER, I thought I really like real life stories instead of fictional stories. And so that sort of propelled me to medical school. And I thought, wow, I can, I can be this person who has these lifelong relationships with my patients and then also have that sort of sciencey part that I love. And when I got there, managed care was just becoming part of the the culture of um you know of the medical community and a lot of my professors were saying it's really different i don't think you're going to be able to practice in the way that you think you're going to to want to and um i wasn't interested in research and the more i did clinical 
um, you know, I would shadow people in clinical settings. I thought, I'm not sure that this is what I want to do. And at the same time, I started writing and I really loved writing. I felt like this is an opportunity to help people to tell their stories. And so I was doing journalism. And so I left medical school to become a journalist, which is the the, the wrong direction. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, most people are like, wait a minute, freelance writer, medical school, which one's more stable? Um, but I left and I, and I was a journalist, you know, exclusively for about 10 years. Um, and in this time, I had a baby. And so I, I, had, I, don't, I think you need to write like a, a productivity book. You really did an incredible amount of things in a very short period of time. So, okay, keep going. <laughs> well, well, I did, but I think again, they were all, it was, it was always something where I felt like this, you know, when we talk about change and we're talking about with change comes loss and, and about familiarity, I was, I was somebody who, who had this very, like very early on, I had this idea that, um, you know, we really do have a limited time here. You know, this whole sort of thing that I went through with Julie, of course, later on, who's the person in the book who, who um, you know, had the cancer diagnosis. Um, I think there was some sense that I always kind of had death sitting on one shoulder, like you get one shot at this thing called life. And so, and I still felt young enough to do these things, which is funny because, you know, in my 20s, okay, well, maybe people would give me a pass for that. But in your 30s, you know, at a certain point, people say, wait a minute, you really have to choose. And I think that on some level, I knew that I was just kind of making lateral moves, meaning I was still working in story and the human condition just through different lenses. And so as a journalist, I felt like I was telling all of these great stories. Um, you know, it was so it was like I get to say the things that people are thinking but they're not really talking about in this way publicly. And I get to say it. I get to ask people those questions. I get to let them say it. Um, and when I had my son, something changed, which was that I felt incredibly isolated as a new parent. And I think a lot of new parents feel this way, which is like you have this infant and you don't have a lot of adult company during the day. Your professional identity starts to shift a little bit. It's hard to work and have a newborn. Um, and so, you know, I would get a million packages because you have a newborn and you need diapers and you need and you you had know, a, a million things on your own. We should be, we should be clear. You didn't yes, have and I'm doing this on my own. I had, I had a baby on my own, um, intentionally. I used a sperm donor to have this baby. And, um, and so, you know, the UPS guy would come and I would literally try to detain him in conversation. I would be like, Hey, how's the weather? And wow, this package is really heavy. Wonder what's in here. You know? Um, and he just hated that. And he would like back away to his big brown truck to avoid me. Eventually, even if something needed a signature, he would tiptoe to my door and like leave it there. So I would not open the door and <laughs> engage in a conversation. Oh. I was, yeah. Um, so I, I was really, you know, that, that person that, that is everyone's nightmare I had become. And, um, and so I realized, wait a minute, I don't think I want to just do journalism while I'm a parent of a young child. I feel like I need to be out in the world in a different way. And I came back to this thing about connection. What I really loved about, you know, I think medical school was the connection with the patients. And so I called up the dean at the medical school where I had been and I said, you know, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And 
she said, she said, you're welcome to come back, but do you really want to do um, finish medical school, do internship and residency with a baby, with a toddler, when a lot of psychiatry today is medication management. And you've always talked about the relational part of the job. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology? And then you can do the kind of work that you've always been talking about. And it was very, it was, it was the most um, sort of obvious advice on the one hand. And also it was like this incredible aha moment to me. I had not considered that. And so um, that's exactly what I did. And so then I became a therapist and I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. Um, I did this TED talk last year, which was about how changing our stories can change our lives. And it, and in it, I talk about how I feel like even when I'm sitting in the therapist chair, that I feel like an editor because I'm really helping people to revise the faulty narrative that they're coming in with. Because we all come in with, you know, this story of like, here's what happened, here's why I'm here, but we're all unreliable narrators. And so, you know, how do you help people to revise their story? So I feel like where I ended up was really... A combination of all of the different things that I did, it just kind of now I have this career where I can help people to tell their stories, change their stories, um, and really examine their stories in a way that I hope helps people to live better lives. You know, I'm curious, like, what you think people do wrong as therapists, uh, and how to avoid that. I mean, I thought it was interesting. You say like every anybody can go to therapy. Um, you can, you know, find ways to go for, for very little money if, if no money, but like, let's face it, there are a lot of really bad therapists out there. Um, and I, sometimes, you know, there's the saying like bad therapy is worse than no therapy. So I wonder like how you feel about that. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, and I also think that we should define bad therapy because I think when you look at the studies, you see that, and with outcomes from therapy, the most important factor in the success of people's therapy is their relationship with their therapist. It matters more than the therapist's training, the modality they're using, the number of years of experience they have, all of which matter. So it's not that those things don't matter, but what matters most is your relationship with your therapist. And so a lot of times what happens is people go in, they're saying, okay, I want to go to therapy and they go in, they get a name and they go and they sit with that person and they think that they're going to be one of two outcomes. One is I'm going to be in therapy with this therapist, or if I don't like it, I'm not going to go to therapy. They don't consider that that first meeting with a therapist is a consultation. It's an opportunity for you to sit down with the person and just see at the end of the, that 50 minutes how did you feel about it? And I would say two questions to ask yourself might be, did I feel understood? Um, and as much as someone can understand you as a complete stranger in 50 minutes, but you get a vibe, you know, do, do I feel like this person gets it? Do I feel like this person understood me in sort of, you know, my gestalt, like my, in a general way? And then the other question is, um, did this person challenge me? And what I mean by that is a, a therapist probably won't challenge you very much in a first session because th there's something that we think about, which is timing and dosage in terms of um, when we're going to say something to somebody and how much we're going to say in that moment or in that session. And in a very first session, of course, you know, somebody really wants to feel heard and seen and understood. But I think you can ask yourself, did this person say one thing or ask me one question that actually made me step back 
and think about something differently, even in a small way? And if so, I would go back to that person. And that doesn't mean you're in therapy with that person. It means I'm going to go back for a second session and I'm going to see how that goes. And after a few of these sessions, you start to get a feel of, yeah, I want to work with this person or no, I don't want to work with this person. And if you don't want to work with this person, a lot of people, what they do is they ghost their therapist, you know, or they, they basically well, just it's disappear. It's really hard to say, to call them and say, I'm not feeling it. I, I find that very difficult. It's like breaking up with somebody, but that in and of itself would be one of my issues. Like, I don't want to hurt people's feelings, so I would rather just disappear. Well, right. And, and the safest space for you to have that really difficult conversation that's hard to have out in the world, which is to say, I don't think this is right. Um, the best place to practice that is in a therapy room because therapists are used to that, right? You're not going to be the therapist for every single person. And we know that. So that's okay. So when we talk about bad therapy, yes, there are people who are just, um, you know, I think you can say most people would find that person to be an ineffective therapist. Um, but there are people who are very effective for some people and therapists who are just not effective for another person. And so finding the right fit is so important. Have you had bad therapists as a patient, client? When I was young, um, I went to a couple of therapists and you know, it was a different era. I think that was the time where therapists were these people who were kind of silent. They, they validated what you said, or they didn't say much, which, you know, especially for a kid, that is really not a, not a very effective approach. Um, I think that most therapists today are very active. They're very interactive in the room. Um, you know, it's, I, I feel like therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from somebody who isn't already in your life. And so I feel like if you're getting that, that, you know, that's really helpful. And that's something that's very different from what you get from your friends. In the book, I write about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And idiot compassion is what our friends do. So your friend says something like, can you believe that my boss, my coworker, my partner, my sibling did this? And we're like, oh my God, that was terrible. You're right. They're wrong. How dare they? Right. We, we think that we're being supportive, but if you actually listen to your friend over time, they're probably telling you a very similar story with maybe different characters. Um, you know, this time it's the boss, the next time it's the friend, the next time it's the romantic partner. Um, you see this pattern, but you don't say that. It's like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We don't say that as friends. We're afraid to say that sometimes. But a therapist offers wise compassion where we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see to see yourself in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to. And that's what makes therapy so effective because very rarely out in the world will people do that for you or will they know how to do that for you in a way where you are welcoming it and open to it. Are some people just unable to be therapized? You know, I'm I'm curious especially like something like um narcissistic personality disorder or or maybe even borderline like you write in the book, narcissistic personality disorder is not considered a good candidate for insight-oriented therapy. Now, I assume we're talking about insight-oriented therapy here. Like, so what if you're a therapist and somebody comes in and you, and you just don't want to work with them for whatever reason, uh, how do you handle that? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think John is a good example where he definitely had, you know, what we would call narcissistic traits. Um, And again, I, I talk about diagnosis and I say this in the book where I feel like diagnosis is helpful because it gives you a framework through which you can view somebody in general terms. But I think that a lot of times if you rely too much on diagnosis, you lose the person behind the diagnosis. And so, you know, people are always like, well, do you think John had per- narcissistic personality disorder? And so many people are having these, you know, social media conversations about that. And to me, that's kind of irrelevant. It's like, John is John. He's the person, John. And so, you know, did I notice that? Yes. Did I make an assessment about whether I thought I could help him? Yes. You know, um, and, and that assessment isn't made in one session. It's made over time. So it, it took many sessions, but I could, every session, I tried to make contact with him in some way. And if I felt I could make contact in one way, whether he acknowledged it or not, then I felt like, yes, I can work with him. I can help him. Do you ever just not like a patient? Like really not like them? So I might not like what they do, um, but I think that if I actually get to know them, then I start to like who they are. And that might sound like I'm splitting hairs, but there's a, there's a big distinction for me. And I think the example in the book is there's this woman that we didn't talk about yet, and I call her Becca in the book. And she comes to me because she's having trouble at work with some of her, her colleagues where, um, you know, like she's young and she's, you know, working in this environment where it's kind of social and people go to lunch together, but they don't stop by her office and say, Hey, you want to join us? And they're not mean to her. They just don't, you know, go out of their way to include her in these things. Um, and then she has the same problem. Like she, you know, she dates people for a few months and then they suddenly decide they're not interested in her and she can't figure out why she has sort of a problematic relationship with her mother, but kind of, doesn't quite see it for what it is. Um, and so she does the same thing with me that she does with everybody out in the world. And, you know, all the things that make people kind of step back from her, kind of avoid her are the things that she does in the therapy room. And that's a great opportunity for her to be able to see, well, this is why it's not that you're unlikable. It's not that you're unlovable. It's that you're doing things that put people off, you know, and so we don't say it that way, but we try to use what's going on in the room and she was having none of it, no matter how I tried to help her see that. And we have these, you know, a lot of people don't know that therapists go to consultation groups every week. Most therapists do where we go and meet with other therapists and we bring our cases to them and we talk about places where we're stuck or we want feedback. And I would bring that case in every week and people would give me all kinds of suggestions. And then I'd go back into the room with Becca and I'd try them and they would bomb. And <laughs> what kind of doing that put people off? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm really curious about this. Can you just what was she doing to put people off? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she was a bit of what we call a help rejecting complainer. So help rejecting complainers are those people who say, "I really want help," and then when you give them suggestions like, "Well, you could do this, or you could do that, or you know, whatever it is," they say, "Yeah, no, that won't work because." Yeah, no, I can't do that. No, that one, you know, and so they're just, they're people who like, you try to help them. They don't want help. Um, She would also do things where she, she was very easily injured. So she would take things that people said as personal insults to her when that was not at all what they were saying or meaning. Um, She was very defensive to any kind of feedback. 
And she was very unaware. She was just very unaware of how she presented in the world. Um, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't open. She was expecting rejection. Um, and she you could kind of, for it. yeah, she was looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is so interesting because I feel like you've just described a sort of micro version of what we see a lot on social media. I feel like there are huge swaths of people who uh, seem to present as extremely thin skinned, looking for um, looking for offense and insults everywhere, a huge chip on the shoulder. And it's almost like this has become a, a way of being in the world that is like, it, 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 in some corners, it has currency. So I, I'm hoping we can shift a little bit here and talk about like what you see as the sort of interaction between people's real lives as they come in and talk with you and what you see online. I think that's such an important point because I feel like the therapy room is one of the few places nowadays with social media where people can actually think their thoughts feel their feelings, say what they're really thinking and feeling, and talk about all of their thoughts and feelings with nuance, without feeling like they're going to get canceled, without feeling like, um, you know, it's going to get posted somewhere, without feeling like it's going to blow up in some way. Um, you can have those real human discussions and really grapple with things. And I think social media makes that very difficult because it's very fast paced. It's very, um, you know, it's like one line here. Um, you know, they're, they're not these sort of more nuanced conversations. There's a way that you're allowed to be. There's a way you're allowed to think something you say might be misconstrued and you can't explain it because by then you've been, you know, it's gone viral and you've been attacked. Um, so I think that it's really, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that that translates into our daily lives outside of the therapy room where people feel like that culture of social media exists even when people are just socializing. Like, is someone taping them? Is someone going to put it on, you know, <laughs> like post it somewhere? Um, is someone going to um, like t even just even if it's not about social media, is someone going to hear them in a way that they don't intend and then assume something about them because the social media culture has, has become the way that we interact with people. And how often are people coming into your office and talking about this kind of stuff? Like, is, has it become sort of most of their lives? I would say for people in their twenties, definitely. Wow. Um, you know, for younger people, in fact, so much of their relationships take place through mediated through their phones, you know, maybe it's not even social media, although part of it is, it's like, I saw this post and what does that mean? And, you know, <laughs> you know, all of those things, yeah. um, the way that, you know, friendships can be damaged by what they see somebody else post on social media, or I can't believe my friend thinks that or posted that or, Oh, so-and-so got together with so-and-so and I wasn't invited. Whereas like in, in pre-social media times, like you know, people have their different friendships and it didn't mean the same thing. It wasn't like someone chose to post this, but not post that. And it sounds really young and really sort of juvenile. But remember, these people in their 20s grew up on this. They went through their adolescence with this. And how do you handle that as an older person? Do you, do you ever have to sort of check yourself and when you're about to say, you know, give me a break, this is not, this is not real life? Or how do you kind of get in there with them uh, and try to empathize? Well, I really do empathize. I mean, I don't feel like, give me a break. I feel like this really is the world in which they live. Um, you know, Charlotte in the book, when she's 
at one point she's telling me about this very painful thing that happened with this guy and she's, she's got her thumbs in the air and she's like, and then he said, and she's moving her thumbs. And then she goes, you know, and then I said, and she's moving her thumbs. And at first I had no idea, like, why are her thumbs in the air? What is she doing? And then I said, wait a minute, you had this conversation on text. And she said, yeah. And I tried to explain to her why this conversation really should happen in person. And I was talking about body language and facial expressions and and being in the room together. And she's like, oh no, we also used emojis. She said that with no, she wasn't joking. She said that completely straight. Like we also used emojis as if to clarify what was happening. And so, you know, that, that was not atypical. So many of the conversations, quote unquote, conversations that I hear about in the therapy room from people in their twenties happened on text and people will literally bring them into me and want to scroll through and read them to me. Do you find that's helpful? I mean, in, you know, in fairness, it might be helpful to have a transcript of a conversation. That's one thing texting does provide. It does. Um, but I also think it's not really helpful because I, I think that what people are are putting in a text is different from what they might be feeling in that moment, right? People, you get a lot, you know, so when I see couples, for example, um, there's a difference between someone coming in and saying, here's what my husband, my wife, my partner said, right? Um And then seeing them in vivo in the room is a completely different experience. So I might, I could hear about somebody for a really long time, but if I actually see them in person, I'm going to, I'm going to learn so much more um, when they're interacting with someone else. I feel like we're like, we're revealed through our relationships with others. Like that's when we're truly revealed. So someone can say, oh yeah, I'm very open with my therapist. Well, not really, because if you come in with the person that you're talking about, then then I'm going to really see how you interact. I'm going to really see aspects of you that you have chosen, you know, maybe consciously, maybe not consciously, not to show me. You know, the there are mental health challenges that present themselves in, in obvious ways, um, having to do with the pandemic, lockdowns, economic uncertainty, fear about getting sick, making others sick, all of that. But, you know, as you as you probably know, I mean, something that comes up on this show a lot has to do with the destabilizing effects of media messaging, of public messaging, of getting information that is just inconsistent or confusing or just feels off somehow. Like, do you have people coming in to your office and saying, I honestly don't know what to believe anymore. Like, I don't know what is true. Like, how existential does it get, especially uh, around the pandemic? Yeah. Well, I think what the pandemic did again was it really made people say, I really need to examine what is meaningful to me. I need to examine um, how to live my life with intention. And I think part of that has been um, people saying, I want to break from social media. In a little, and and I'm not anti-social media, by the way, and I don't think they are either. I think what they're saying is there's so many messages that are confusing to them. One of them, I think, especially when we we're talking about sort of younger people um, in their 20s, is this this idea of what is the patriarchy, right? So this is something that people cannot touch in conversations with their friends. Women cannot touch in conversations with their friends because they will be. Well, they can if they're saying the right thing about it, right? Right, exactly. But I'll tell you, it's interesting because a lot of women are saying, you know, 
I, I have a more nuanced view of men and women and relationships between men and women. And they're hearing a lot of like, you know, just men are bad. Right. And, and they don't really believe that men are bad in the way that they're, that, that they feel like they have to say in front of their friends. Um, and I feel like how that plays out later is when I see couples and I see like, let's say it's a heterosexual couple and you have like a husband and a wife coming in and a common theme is the woman saying to the guy, I just, I feel like we're not connecting. I feel like I really want to understand more about you. I want you to share more of your inner life with me. I feel like there's this distance between us. And so he does. And he starts sharing things about his inner life with her and he starts crying and he starts really crying. Think about what it's like for women to sit with a man who is bawling. Usually what happens is the woman will look at me like a deer in headlights. And what comes out is she, you know, some version of, I don't feel safe when he's not opening up to me because I don't feel like we're close, but I also don't feel safe when he opens up too much like this, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like a trap. And so, you know, men, when they come in to therapy, at some point, they usually say something like, you know, I've never told anyone this before when it's just me and, and that person. And they truly have not told a soul, whatever that thing is. Women will come in and they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, my best friend, right? right. So they've told like a few people, but they feel right. like they haven't told anyone. And I feel like there's this double standard. And I'm raising a boy, by the way. So I come at this from both the perspective of a therapist and also the perspective of somebody who is watching a boy grow up in this culture. You have a great line in the book. While women feel cultural pressure to keep up their physical appearance, men feel cultural pressure to keep up their emotional appearance. I thought that was a really poignant um, observation. Very well put. One of the things that that people really struggle with is they say, you know, I really want to be with a guy who is going to see me, hear me, understand me. And I want to see and hear and understand him too. But then that version of that guy is unattractive to them. Right. So they feel like, you know, like and and men, you see that with John in the book where he felt like he had to be the rock. He had to be the solid one in the family, the stable one. Right. And so his wife could have all the emotions, but he couldn't because he had to hold everything up. And I think men feel so much pressure around. I have to be stoic. I have to be I can't show my emotions that that will be a weakness, not a strength. And women will say, no, 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 that's not true. But when actually when they're in that situation with a real live person, right, with a real live guy, um, they have a lot of trouble with it. They have a lot of ambivalence around it. Yeah. And, you know, that leads me into a couple things I want to talk about in terms of a book you published in 2010. Uh, it had to do with dating and mating and partnerships. It's called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. It came off of a rather explosive Atlantic Magazine article. There was a lot of controversy surrounding some of what you were talking about. But I often think that, you know, about, I think about some of the discussions, also controversial, about the ways in which women are soaring ahead of men in so many ways, uh, economically, in terms of education, just overall quality of life, ambition. Um, and that this has really changed the dynamic between the sexes in a way that, 
you know, it, it has an effect on the dating economy, um, but also just in terms of the way we talk about who has power, who has more power, men or women. And there is an assumption still that the patriarchy exists in a particular way uh, and that men by default have more power. But I, I don't think I'm saying anything uh, radical by saying that's that's really less and less true. Uh, so I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. First of all, I should say, as you know, Megan, the, the subtitle of the book about settling, this book is not a book about settling. Um, that was a battle that I lost with my publisher. Um, I was actually going to pull the book because I did not want the word settle on there because it is not a book about settling. Um, it's a book about what are the... Um, what are the qualities that really matter for lasting loving relationships and um and and how does our culture get in the way of people really looking for that and noticing that um and and then wondering why they're struggling in relationships so you know i think that tell me again what the question about oh about women and men having w- more power right so look I don't think that it's really a productive conversation to talk about, um, you know, I, to have these sort of like general conversations about who has more power in any, you know, in a global way. I think in in specific situations, men have more power. And I think in other specific situations, women have more power. And so I think the question is, how do we figure out how we want to relate to one another? And I think that when we decide we want to share the power in the situations where one or the other has more power, that's when people feel more connected. And that's what most of my work is about. So what are you observing um, in terms of the way boys are being socialized uh, and the way girls are being socialized these days? You're raising a son. Uh, you grew up in the in the 70s, in the 80s, I suppose. Do you think that it's it's a better time to be a girl than than in the past is it a worse time to be a boy like you know i know these are big generalizations but i think it's think mixed for both um you know i remember when my son was little that girls in preschool would wear these shirts that said boys are stupid let's throw sand at them these were shirts that were commercially available, right? Um, and and people thought they were cute somehow. And so what were little boys supposed to think about that? Can you imagine if there were shirts that said, girls are stupid, let's throw sand at them? I mean, yeah. that was acceptable. That was that was supposed to be like girl power, right? Right, and it came from the premise that boys automatically had power. So it was a punching up gesture, right? I right. mean, I talk a lot about this in, in my book. It doesn't make any sense to me when you really think about it. But yeah, it's become part of the vernacular. Right. And so it's okay to insult boys and talk about how stupid they are or, you know, how incompetent they are. I mean, even when you think about dads, you know, people are always like, if the dad, um, you know, like does something well as a parent that that's like a miracle but it shouldn't be a miracle right i mean that person is that person's parent he's babysitting his own kids right 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 but i mean like there's so much there's so much where i i think in the culture it's okay to say men are incompetent at these things and you know and so i think that that when you talk about the socialization of boys boys grow up thinking um you know wow it's okay for girls to say these things and boys by the way 
have to be so incredibly careful. And, and I think partly in a good way, because there were a lot of, there are a lot of ways that boys would say things that would make girls feel less than, um, but I think that now it's become this culture of like, when there is any dispute about what happened between a boy and a girl, the girl is always right. And, you know, as teenagers, like believe the woman, believe the woman. The moral um, authority. Right. So there's, there's, there's no room for, wait a minute, let's hear from both of these people. And, so, and I think what happens is like when I look at my son, now he's, he's in ninth grade, but, you know, as I look at the kids who are older than he is, um, you know, I hear from a lot of the parents that their boys who are even like seniors in high school are afraid to kiss a girl because they're like, you know, this whole thing about like, you know, what's going to, you know, they're like, I'm going to have my college admission rescinded if someone thinks something that I didn't intend or there's a miscommunication or she decides that there was a miscommunication or whatever it is. And everything I'm saying right now, people will probably cancel me for even just talking about this. But I can say that this happens all the time where parents are talking about it. Their sons are talking about it. Their daughters are talking about it because their daughters are like, boys won't even date me because they're afraid to date me. Right. Yep. (laughs) You know, there is this concept that I find really thought provoking, which is that feminism, the women's movement, has been great for women and it's been great for high status men. But what about all the low status men, whatever that means, that no longer automatically have a certain population of partners available to them because women either don't need men, they think they don't need men, they're just, they would rather be alone than be with somebody um, not sort of quote unquote good enough for them. You know, and that kind of, that sort of mushrooms into a whole bunch of social phenomenon, including the incel thing um, that can be really, really damaging. So like, I, I wonder like how you, how you think about all that kind of stuff in this context. Well, I think that, um, and I, you know, you'd have to look at the studies, but I'm pretty sure that more women than men go to college nowadays. Absolutely more. Yes, that's, that's, that there is data on that. Absolutely. And so I think that what happens is you're looking at um, when people want to marry somebody who is at the same level of education, they're going to find that, of course, there are more women who have a higher level of education than the number of men who do. And that creates an imbalance in the dating pool. So I hear about that constantly in my therapy practice. And what do you say? Well, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I can't argue with the culture. I mean, that's what the culture is. So I think that I think that people really struggle. And so I try to help people to, um, you know, manage the struggle. But I mean, do you ever just find yourself with somebody who, you know, a young woman who's say in, in her twenties or even early thirties, and she is genuinely, in your view, misinformed about the state of men or the state of women, really believing in the sort of hashtag patriarchy kind of uh, sensibility, and you're having to kind of like deprogram her in a way. Like, how how deep do you get into that kind of conversation? I think what I can really help people with, and this is where I think the people um, who come to me and then find the relationship that they're looking for are really grateful for, is that I think they come in with certain ideas about who is this person that's going to be my partner. And what happens is they they feel like, well, you know, 
there's this idea in their head and it's a very narrow, rigid idea in their head of who that person is going to be. And I think that, um, you know, we, you know, we're looking at life as it happens. So they're going on the dates they're coming in, they're talking about them and we're talking about it as it's happening. And that's so much more effective than talking about something that happened in the past. I can learn something from what happened in the past, but I'm hearing it through that person's you know, narrative. Um, and when it's happening in, in real time, I can ask certain questions to get more of the narrative and to get a more accurate version of what's happening. And so, you know, I think you see that with Charlotte. And so part of it is the culture, but part of it is also what do we bring to it from our childhoods, right? And so when you mix those two things together, sometimes that leaves a lot of people with very limited options because they're not really looking at, wait, who is a person that would actually be a good partner for me. Um, you know, people will go on a first date with someone and say, yeah, no chemistry. When, you know, if they actually go on three dates with that person, they're like, wow, there's so much chemistry here. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but there was so many things blocking them from feeling the chemistry. And part of that has to do with the culture and part of that has to do with their, their personal history. And so I think that's where therapy is really helpful when you're actually doing the dating at that time and you're coming in and you're really bearing all, you know, you're not like leaving in part of the story or leaving out part of the story, which we sometimes do when we're talking about things that happened in the past. Do you think that dating apps have been a net positive or a negative? Again, I don't think it's binary. I I, I think oh, that in some on. ways, I don't. I mean, I mean, that's what your whole show is about, right? Is that I, I I think there's so much nuance to these conversations. I think that there are there are things about dating apps that are great, which is it gives people access to a lot of people, and I think that there's this. Um, I, I think that people don't realize when they're going, when they're in college, that that group of people that you're in college with, this is the only time in your life, probably that you're going to be surrounded by people who are your age, who probably have something in common with you because you're at the same school. Um, and, and this is your dating pool, right? And they don't realize that once they graduate, they're going to go out into the world where they're going to work at a job where there's going to be people of all different ages. Most of the people will be married already because they're older. Um, and, and you might not have, you know, you might not be surrounded by so many single people in your age group ever again, right? And so then they have to actively seek out people. And it's very hard. A lot of people don't want to meet people at bars. Um, you know, are you invited to whatever party where you're going to meet somebody? Um, maybe you've moved to a new city and you don't know that many people. You don't really have a network there. You don't really have community there. Um, you know, the people that you knew in high school, maybe you're gone or you're in a completely different place. Oh, and you can't meet people at work anymore. You're actually not allowed. And I was going to say that was the other part. And it's so confusing because people are terrified to, um, you know, not only not only like have a romantic relationship with other people at work, but sometimes even to be friends with somebody of the opposite sex at work. Right. Because it'll be misconstrued in some way. Do you find that um, younger people, people in their 20s, uh, early 30s, are just like not dating at all or not having relationships? I feel like I read, well, I, I think there, there, there are statistics that say people are having a lot less sex. It seems like sometimes they either partner up very young or just don't have relationships at all. Well, when you asked about the apps and I said the good thing was that it gave you access outside of, you know, your world that might be very narrow in terms of finding people that are appropriate to date. Um, the other side of the apps is that people 
have this illusion that there are a million people out there. And so the bar gets very high. So what happens is people don't take the time to get to know one person and they go out on a date. Um, They had like a good time, like fine, good, but like, you know, didn't get butterflies in their stomach, but you know, good time. They immediately like go back on the apps or maybe they'll go out again with that person. Maybe they won't, but then there's this other new, exciting, shiny thing over here. So let me go check that out. Um, It's very hard. And I think the other thing is that a lot of people um, don't get into relationships. So they're just, they're going on a lot of dates. They're hooking up, but they are not having the experience of relationship. I, I have people that I have seen who can get to 30 years old and have never really had a true relationship. They've dated someone for a few months here and there, but it what but then they, they weren't really committed or you know they were seeing other people. Um and and I think that you know it used to be that in high school and I'm going to say this as an old person now, but in high school, you know, you would you would date people, certainly in college you would date people. Um and and in your 20s like you would date and i think that now a lot of people even in college like they've never really said i had a girlfriend or i had a boyfriend they could wow. never they would never call the person that is that just because it's like uncool or or what is it no, they didn't consider like it was not it was not considered to be that level of commitment right but they would be having sex with that person. Of course they would, but it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of casual. You know, there's that, they always say like casual. Right. Um, or they catch feelings. Catch feelings is when you start to have feelings for your hookup, right? Like yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it, I, I think that people just don't know what it's like to be in relationship. And then they meet someone who could be the person that they want to spend their lives with. And they just don't know how to do this at all. What are the things that people are saying to you that they that they are the most uncomfortable with, but that also feel the most of the moment to you? What are you hearing that's different? I'm hearing about profound loneliness. And I hear that from almost everybody that comes in in some way. Um whether they're grieving, whether they're coming in because of something, you know, concrete that happened in their lives. Um, I think people are feeling disconnected and lonely, even if they have a great partner, even if they have great family, even if they have great friends. Um, there's a sense of not really truly feeling connected in a way that they want to and connected to themselves too, by the way. So it's not just connected to others, but connected to self. I want to say something about vulnerability, which is that so many times people will post on social media, like on Instagram, you'll see, you know, I'm going to be really vulnerable with all you guys today. And I'm going to tell you this thing that, you know, I haven't said before and they'll they'll say something and then they get like a million likes and people say, you know, all the comments are like, oh my gosh, you were so vulnerable. We so appreciate that. We love you. And everybody loves yep. everybody, right? They it's all so love great. everybody, yes. right? Um, and let me tell you something. As a therapist, I can say, and as a human, I can say that real vulnerability happens when you are face-to-face with another person in your life where the stakes are high and this person matters to you and their reaction to what you reveal is going to matter in your day-to-day life. 
in a significant way. So it's not about what you tell the people that you've never met on Instagram who will put little heart emojis. It is about when you sit on the couch with this person and you hold their hand and you say, I need to tell you this thing. And you have to have that hard conversation. That is true vulnerability. And this is why people feel lonely because they are not experiencing true vulnerability where it matters. Because they're just going on Instagram instead? Like it's become a substitute? Or they just don't know how to do the in-person, on-the-couch, holding-the-hands version? Both. I mean, they're related, right? If you, if you don't know how to do it, you might think, misguidedly, that what people do on Instagram is real vulnerability. This has been really um, fruitful and illuminating conversation. I, I end by, by asking one last question, and that is, when... When is when do we know it's time to leave therapy? You you write in the book therapy works best when people are starting to get better, but often people leave just as their symptoms are starting to lift. Um, how do you know when you're done? There's this myth about therapy that you're going to go to therapy, you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you're never going to leave. Or you're going to go to therapy, you're going to download the problem of the week. You're going to do all the same things you normally do out in the world. You're going to come back, download the problem of the week. That's not therapy, right? So therapy, you know, we like to say the insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you aren't making changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So somebody might say, you know, oh, you know, I got into this argument with my mother over the weekend, and now I know why I do that. And I'll say, well, did you do something different? And they'll say, well, no, but now I understand why I do that. Well, that's the first step. But, the, but what really needs to happen is most of what happens in therapy takes place outside of the therapy room, meaning most of your therapy work is going to happen when you're not in the room with me. So we're going to do the work, but then you have to apply it during the week. So how do you know when you're done? Well, when you are applying what we've been talking about out in the world, things are going to shift for you. Whatever you came in for, right, is going to look different now. You're going to navigate through your relationships more smoothly. You're going to feel less stuck. You're going to feel less depressed. You're going to have a handle on your anxiety in a different way. Um, you're going to have a different relationship with yourself. Those old stories that you've told yourself, like I'm unlovable or I can't trust anyone or nothing will ever work out for me, has been rewritten and edited in some way to reflect reality. So. Um, that's when you see the change and that's when, you know, you might want to not do the work anymore at that point. Um, it's an ongoing conversation. So I'm always looking at what's going on and people, you know, I will say to people, if people are coming in and they're sort of like chit chatting with me, I think one of two things, I think either a, there's something that we should be talking about that they are reluctant to talk about, and I will ask them directly about that, or B, they're chit-chatting because they're done and they don't know how to say, I'm done. And so I will bring it up and I will say, you know, what's going on here? Is it that we really have nothing more to say, or is there something else that we should be talking about, or should we talk about ending? So the goal of a therapist is to have you leave. And so whether you bring that up or we bring that up, whenever somebody, one or the other, the therapist or the patient is feeling that, it gets brought up or it should be brought up. Well, Lori, thank you so much for speaking with me. And just thanks for thinking about this as deeply as you do. And moreover, talking about it in a really accessible, uh, just straightforward way. I think, uh, I think you do a real service there. And um, your book is wonderful. And uh, 
I hope you write another one soon. Well, it's my pleasure. And you know, I am a huge fan of your podcast because outside of the therapy room, it's one of the few places that people get to have these conversations. That was my conversation with Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a psychotherapist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. In addition to her clinical practice, Lori writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and is co-host of the popular Dear Therapists podcast. You can find her at lauriegottlieb.com. And that's Lori with an I. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please consider leaving a rating or a review somewhere. Positive only, please. If you'd like to support the podcast, please sign up on its Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. There's some exciting stuff coming up on the Patreon page, so this is a great time to join. I hope you'll tune into the show next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.